The Dauntless Gambit by Eric Flowers. Narrated by Chris Lynch. Episode 48, Runs in the Family. The crew lounge echoed with the sounds of Heavy's entertainment selection playing on the oversized vid screen. Coquettish laughter, breathy sighs, restrained whimpers through a lightly bit bottom lip. All those were just Heavy's reactions to the romance drama he saw on the screen. Eliza grimaced at the convoluted and melodramatic relationship playing out between the characters. Her body draped sideways across the lounge's easy chair, head on one armrest, legs hanging over the other. When Heavy had wandered into the crew lounge several hours earlier, he had seemed morose, which for Heavy meant just slightly less jubilant than usual. But it was noticeable. Eliza supposed she could feel it too. She could endure Decker's moping, that was expected. But seeing Heavy with a frown had been too much, and Eliza resolved in that moment to make this sacrifice. Now, Eliza wasn't opposed to romance. She just would have preferred a little more action, of both the fighting and loving variety. But Eliza had given Heavy the choice of what they beamed in over the public fringe transmitter feeds, and the big man preferred sentimental dramas. Heavy leaned toward her, his eyes still on the screen. See, he doesn't know that the baby isn't actually the mistress's, but that the nurse, who was really her sister, switched them. But it turns out that he is actually the identical twin of the doctor. Eliza manufactured a pleasant hum of interest. Her thoughts had been elsewhere as the vid had progressed, assisted by her cybernetic eye being turned off for most of the duration. She had barely contained her eye roll when Heavy had gasped over the tragic misunderstanding at the halfway point, only to then suppress a groan at Heavy's swooning when the same misunderstanding was miraculously healed by a passion-filled reconciliation somewhere in the third act. Eliza's right arm hung down against the chair, gently swinging back and forth while her left held the empty glass its cybernetics keeping it locked in place with gyroscope-assisted steadiness that would have fatigued flesh and blood by now. The glass of Mr. B's rocket fuel she had downed in the opening scenes had worn off, but getting up felt like an expenditure of energy she wasn't in the mood for. The experience of her cybernetic battery discharging itself into her body on Sonali had taken a lot out of her. The next time she attempted to surprise someone with that trick, she'd remember to make sure her metal palm was touching bare skin. That, or maybe her cybernetic hand could be lined with explosives and then made to uncouple at the wrist. She would clamp the fingers closed, detach the hand, then pull her arm back and run while calling over her shoulder, let me give you a hand, or I gotta hand it to you, or even, this situation is out of hand. Eliza snorted a laugh. She'd lose the hand, but it would be worth it just for the puns. Heavy glanced her away at the sound and shot her an accusing eyebrow. On the screen, a pair of characters Eliza didn't remember seeing were apparently involved in a dramatic rain-soaked embrace. It appeared she had daydreamed her way through the end of the first vid and was now deep into a second. Eliza cleared her throat, nodding at the screen. I'm, uh, happy for them, she sputtered, gesturing with the empty glass to the embracing lovers. It was a great climax. Heavy narrowed his eyes and slowly, very slowly, turned his attention back to the screen. The vid continued. Eliza kept her emanations to herself until the words she'd been waiting to see appeared. The end. From the couch, Heavy let out a rueful sigh, head shaking, 
in what could only be described as appreciative disbelief at the impossible-not-to-predict outcome. Well, Hev, not a bad way to kill three hours, Eliza said, adding under her breath, felt like three hundred. Heavy grinned, picking up the vidscreen remote and navigating to another title of the same sickly sweet variety. He pointed up at the screen, giving Eliza a quick bob of his eyebrows. If you like that last one, this one is about a group of sisters, each competing to impress the wealthy new neighbor who just purchased the estate next to theirs. Will it be the pretty one? The flirty one? The intellectual one? Plenty of time left in this jump to find out. Eliza tried to smile, her cheeks twitching as a wheezing groan of reluctance accidentally escaped. Yay! A sly grin appeared on Heavy's jubilant face. He was enjoying this. Nothing wrong with something a little softer. I've seen enough action and adventure in reality that watching actors pretend to fire bolt pistols and make harrowing escapes bores me. And a romance is an escape this ship could use more of. We've all been run and gun for a while now. Just once. Wouldn't you want someone chasing you because they want to kiss you, not kill you? Eliza pursed her lips in grudging agreement, rolling onto her back and staring up at the ceiling. Can't argue with that. She sighed, loud, long, and dramatically. You know, our lives on the Matilda were chaotic and plenty dangerous before Samantha came aboard. But back then, it was more like antics, capers, escapades, larks. It didn't feel so serious. Heavy chuckled. Are you saying that becoming embroiled in the high-stakes world of intrasector spy stuff isn't what the actors in the vids make it out to be? Eliza wrinkled her nose. Yeah, the spy stuff on the vids is just about as fake as the romance. Heavy grunted and dramatically waved away Eliza's comment. He sighed, settling deeper into the couch. Well, it looks like our foray into that kind of intrigue is coming to an end once we reach Gaff. After that, it'll just be... Heavy's words trailed off as the image on the vid screen suddenly cut away the blushing faces of the actors replaced by the logo of the Greater Fringe News Network. Heavy and Eliza's heads turned to face each other, both raising an inquisitive eyebrow before turning back to the vid screen. The logo faded away, replaced by the view of a news anchor seated behind a desk, her voice stern. We interrupt this vidcast to bring you breaking news from across the sector. Moments ago, in what appears to be a coordinated effort, Heavy and Eliza listened as the anchor recounted the story. Neither spoke, both of their jaws slowly dropping. Whoa, Eliza murmured. Heavy raised his eyebrows. Yeah, whoa. Eliza puffed her cheeks and leapt from the couch, scampering across the lounge to the intercom panel. She jammed her finger into the button, dramatically clearing her throat over the speakers. This is not a test of the Matilda emergency broadcast system. There's some big news that you're going to want to see. Big. Please stop sulking and get down here. Decker had been half asleep beneath the warm, orange lights of his cabin when Eliza's voice blared over the intercom. After a moment of consideration about muting the speaker, he roused himself and pulled a sleeveless shirt over his tattooed arms, the mostly healed bolt wound from Talius on his shoulder just slightly protesting at the movement. His right hand had fared better on Sonali, the bolt pistol he'd been holding had absorbed most of the energy, leaving his fingers a little red, but with no lasting damage. He needed a vacation, 
Maybe that's what Eliza's urgent announcement was about. The whole sector was calling for a coordinated break. Everyone go home. Take it easy. You've earned it. A snort cut off the thought and picked up the last cartridge of his Mentarid blend nether and clamped it between his teeth. The only break he'd be getting. Then made his way to the lounge to take in the next phase of whatever calamity was about to beset them. The lounge vid screen was split into a dozen different feeds. A grid of news footage and talking heads from Imperium and fringe sources alike. Eliza held the remote and was cycling the audio every few seconds as the rest of the crew and Samantha watched in silence. The Imperium capital on Kestris is in ruin. The High Imperius was evacuated by his palace guards. Unconfirmed reports indicate he was taken into orbit and is awaiting to address the Empire from aboard the Terminus, which has been in orbit around Kestris since the Starview Station attack last week. Martial law has been declared across the Imperium, as active and imminent threats to the safety of the populace continue to be reported. Imperium Navy fleets are surrounding each of the eleven unified planets, Kestris included, with additional Navy resources being sent to critical choke points in the fringe. Kestris is under complete lockdown. Of the ten unified planets, seven are actively rejecting orders to stand down by the Imperium Navy. Unconfirmed reports are claiming there is evidence linking the High Imperious Edwin Seven to the Red Kestrel terrorist group, alleging he was behind what underground sources are calling a false flag operation that has backfired. We have confirmed that the High Imperious Edwin Seven has been killed aboard the Navy flagship the Terminus while resisting a lawful arrest, with members of his staff and closed council in custody. Sorry, Kent, uh, I have to interrupt. It appears that Imperium Defense Minister Erin Archer has announced herself as the president of a new government they're calling the New Kestris Republic. And former Imperium Fleet Marshal Gallo is backing her, calling himself the Lord Ascendant. Across the Empire, it looks like Navy fleets have turned on each other, with hundreds of commanding officers refusing to acknowledge Archer and Gallo's self-appointment. Eliza lowered the volume of the feeds. So... This is it, huh? All just a big setup to overthrow the Emperor and reconquer the planets from Kestris outward. Decker folded his arms. He looked to Samantha for her reaction. She'd taken the empty space next to Heavy directly in front of the screen. Her eyes were locked on the images, expression bent into a scowl of incredulity. Her head nodded as she spoke, her words pressured and urgent. This is how it starts. The public need to feel afraid enough to give Archer and Gallo the support they need. The story they'll sell is that they're restoring the government as a republic, that this is all necessary to protect the people. Shifting the blame to the High Imperius is a brilliant move. He would have had just as much access and influence as Gallo to pull this off. All Gallo has to do is present his own plan and change the names. Heavy whistled softly. And they made sure to wipe him out and lock up his council the first chance they got. This is some cold-blooded treachery. Sullivan growled from his table, disgust souring his already sour expression. The bigger the lie, the easier it is for a scared populace to accept. The High Imperius is dead now, and believing that their new president and her fleet marshal are the guilty parties? This is an alternative far too terrifying to contemplate. Manu crossed the lounge and came to a stop behind the couch. He pointed at one of the muted feeds. It showed decades-old footage of religious practitioners in cossacks and robes, the text beneath reading, Fleet Marshal, Man of the Cloth. Looks like Gallo is introducing the Creator's religion back into this republic. Selly? Sullivan scoffed, practically spitting. 
It is a perversion of the faith. Gallo has long been rumored to be a secret adherent, but our higher power embodies creation. This is nothing more than destruction. Destructive or not, I guess the mystery is solved. Manu pointed to archival footage of Fleet Marshal Gallo and Defense Minister Archer playing on one of the feeds. There's your compromise in the Imperium, or what was the Imperium? Decker frowned, nether still dangling from the corner of his mouth. Every report was the same, the only difference being the sentiment of the particular feed. Imperium loyalists were outraged. Republic supporters offered approval of Archer and Gallo while avoiding specific comment about their methods. Feeds from the fringe ran the whole spectrum, many of the hundreds of planets offering support to the old empire, the new republic, or neither. One of the feeds was a high-latency broadcast from across the gulf, remarking on how the Selican Confederation had made no comment beyond stating they were monitoring the situation and would tolerate no incursions. Decker paced across the lounge. Hey, Sully, gaff still safe? Sullivan tapped a command into his computer. It appears so. The governor on Gaff has issued a statement offering her sympathy to anyone caught in the middle of what she calls a civil war, but did not imply that she or her government were offering support to any ex-imperium refugees. We should keep our current entanglements to ourselves. Manu paced in the opposite direction from Decker, arms folded. Planet that small will want to stay out of this. Smart to look concerned, but keep as far away as they can. He stopped, turning his eyes toward Samantha. Sullivan's right. We don't want to advertise any former imperial allegiances. Eliza groaned, throwing her head back against the easy chair's headrest. The fringe's governors will watch from the sidelines until they can predict who's going to come out on top and then scramble to act like they supported the victor all along. That way, when the Republic fleet blots out their son, they can say, oh, sure, we've always been on your side. Please make the conquering gentle. Then, where the Selicans decide this is the perfect time to sneak across the gulf and hit the former Imperium New Republic while they're busy fighting. Eliza stood abruptly and stomped to the galley bar. We're going to need more alcohol. Like, a lot more. Heavy turned to Samantha, a shadow of concern across his face. You think that's it? Civil war? Samantha took a breath, her shoulders rising and falling. To start... The Red Kestrels will be wiped out as a show of the irrefutable superiority of Gallo's New Republic. The planets of the former Empire will be told to surrender, giving them a chance at a bloodless coup. And if they resist, I'm certain Gallo has no qualms over ignoring the bloodless part. The Republic replaces the Empire, with the same puppet master behind it all. Samantha gestured to one of the feeds, which was playing recent footage of the fleet marshal. Does that look like the face of someone who will be content with swapping a high imperious for a president and then stopping? On the screen, Gallo was flanked by decorated admirals, generals, all manner of military officers, marching beside him down a corridor on that massive floating city that was the terminus. His eyes were cold, like he was looking past a horizon only he could see, and he resented everyone else for lacking that same vision. A shudder at the thought of being on the fleet marshal's hit list caused Decker to take his first, deep drag off the nether cartridge. Being on a few corporate ones, as well as Rennick's, was bad enough. Someone like Gallo, though. Sullivan's mention of destruction felt inadequate. The movement of Samantha suddenly rising to her feet interrupted Decker's thoughts. She stood with fists clenched, shoulders back, 
eyes narrowed on the vid screen. I have to go to Kestris, Samantha said, the edge to her voice returning. Decker took a step toward her. His head tilted so far to the side he thought it might break off. Kestris? You said Kestris, like where Gallo is? Rennick? All of them? You saw the feeds. The planet is under blockade with the Imperium, or Republic Navy, keeping people away from leaving or arriving. Samantha nodded slowly. Most ships, yeah. She looked to the corridor that led down to the cargo hold. Decker squeezed his eyes closed. The ship in the cargo hold, the night, whatever. You think it can get you past all that? Samantha turned to face the lounge, eyes wide with an energy that both excited and troubled Decker. I don't think. I know it can. Oh, 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 Eliza chirped from the galley. Does this mean what I think it means? That antics are in our future? Samantha planted her hands on her hips, a fire in her eyes burning away the toll the previous days had taken on her. Something like that. My friends, Clark and Julian, sent me that ship to get in and out of difficult places. Looks like getting them off of Kestris is where it's going to make the difference. Manu caught eyes with Decker, only to be met with a shrug before looking back at Samantha. They're the ones who sent you out on your own? The reason you're here? Samantha nodded. And it's how I'm going to be able to go back and get them. The original mission failed. It never stood a chance against what was coming. She pointed to a vid showing scenes of the Kestris Capital compound. Military police were already present in the streets. Rennick is there. He won't be done with them. And if he can't get at Clark and Julian as a Republic Navy commander, he'll do it as a back-alley assassin. They have no protection. If 5e isn't already dismantled, it will be soon. They need a way out. Besides, a rare grin broke Samantha's usual glower. My schedule is clear, right? Samantha looked to Decker. So did Manu. So did everyone. Why were they looking at him? Decker sighed. Look, she's not wrong. If her friends on Kestris are in need of extraction, she's the best chance they have. And this Julian guy... I'm not entirely free from his dead either. Manu folded his arms. You know him? Decker rocked his head to the side. Well, didn't know him well. But he's the one who made sure, at Samantha's request, that Decker Corlith got both in and out of the Imperium Navy, while Decker Sagan remained the anonymous, forgotten kin of a known Red Kestrel founder. So, Decker is your real name, Eliza cackled from the galley. Samantha turned to Manu. It was Julian who cracked the original lead on the Dauntless theft, who prepared the computer for me to use, who gave us the protocols, siphoned the money, arranged for the Nighthawk to be on Sonali. The brains of the operation, now that I can buy, Manu said. Samantha shrugged. Decker shrugged too. From the corner table, Sullivan chimed in, a single finger raised in the air. I hate to point this out, but none of us are quite capable of getting out of this mess on our own. Should the conflict spill into the fringe, which it surely will, we will be on the run from Rennick, Gallo, and whoever else we've managed to anger with nothing but the outdated guns and pitiful sensors this ship calls a defense system. Heavy reared back, hand over his heart as if he'd been struck. Whoa, hey, go easy on Tilda. We're all a little past our prime but she's got it where it counts. Sullivan grimaced. Notwithstanding, by helping Samantha retrieve her stranded friends on Kestris, 
we gain someone on the Matilda who could help extract us from the jam we find ourselves in. Decker squinted back at Sullivan. How strong was this Mentarid nether? Sully, are you suggesting that we help her extract her friends onto the Matilda? Sullivan took a moment to meet the eyes of everyone in the room. I joined this crew so I could drift throughout the sector by choice. I have no desire to do so without a choice because I'm a fugitive enemy of the Kestris Republic. Do any of you? We must face the fact that the point of no return is several jumps behind us. This Julian friend is our best chance at dislodging ourselves from an unending life on the run. Manu held up his hand, pointing at both Sullivan and Decker. Is there some sort of psychic link going on between you two? I thought rousing, counterintuitive speeches convincing us to head into the jaws of danger were Decker's thing. Decker folded his arms and smiled. Maybe I've converted him. Either way, it doesn't change the situation Sully has summed up. Heavy took his turn at standing, turning to face the crew. The jump drive in the Nighthawk is limited, but if the Matilda gets it close enough, Samantha can jump from dead space without the Matilda having to actually go near any populated Imperium, er, Republic places. We just open the cargo bay in the middle of nowhere, push it out, and jump away in opposite directions. Once she gets her friends, she can scramble back into orbit and jump to rendezvous coordinates to reunite with the Matilda. Infiltration and extraction. Keeps the Matilda away and lets the people and hardware equipped for the job do what they do best. The crew was back in solution mode, all standing in a circle around the couch. Decker shook his head in cynical awe. She'd done it again. Somehow, Samantha had roused them all and now they were planning a new mission more dangerous than the one they just failed. Manu came to Sanity's rescue. Can we talk about the situation we just got out of when our do-what-they-do-best operative ran into a building full of Imperium Navy commandos with no backup or exit plan? Decker puffed his cheeks but remained silent. It was a painfully valid point Manu made, and Decker had the bruises to prove it. As Decker attempted to mentally cobble together a response, Samantha took a step forward. It was a mistake. She looked directly at Manu, squaring her shoulders as she spoke. I made a mistake. I endangered you all because of emotion. She swallowed, head twitching slightly. I apologize. Get me within the Nighthawk's jump range. I'll bring Julian and Clark if he'll come, and they can make things right. And if I can't extract them, the Matilda jumps away just as it would have anyway. Eliza raised her glass. Well, that sounds sincere enough for me. It's back to Kestris for the second time in two weeks. Decker's mind attempted to calculate their windows of opportunity. The Nether had other ideas. I... Hmm. Sully? Jump distances? Sullivan's fingers tapped a frenzy of commands into his computer. Best case, gaff to Kestris, two days. If we immediately jump away from Gaff after dropping, we'll have six hours left until we arrive. Heavy raised a hand. Actually, I've been brainstorming down in the power plant, keeping my mind busy, you know. I took a little look at the Nighthawk, and we might be able to hook into its navigation system and route all the Matilda's jump telemetry to it. That would cut off an entire day. Decker, along with the rest of the crew and Samantha, turned to Sullivan. Sully, confirm? Sullivan rose from the table, joining the circle, fingers steepled and a hungry look in his eye. 
there is potential in Heavy's idea. We would essentially be a Matilda-shaped shell around the Nighthawk, relying on its advanced technology to make up time. Heavy tilted his head, one eye squinted shut. He quietly sucked in a breath. If we want to gain more time, we can drop out of jump space before we reach Gaff. Everyone in the room turned to Heavy, a shared look of disbelief on all of their faces. Manu leaned forward as if he hadn't heard correctly. Drop out of jump space. Blindly just pull the ripcord. Heavy nodded. It's not as dangerous as you would think. Lots of ships drop out of jump space and survive just fine. Drives can fail, there are accidents, ships can malfunction. Sullivan, please weigh in on this, Manu said. Sullivan smiled. It is possible to drop out of jump space, yes. There is no inherent danger in the drop itself. The mechanism of spinning down the drive is the same. Manu counted off the hazards as he spoke. Except you could drop out in the middle of a star, a planet, the gravity well of a black hole. Or worse, we drop into dead space and the jump drives fail and we're too far from any planets for thrusters. Or maybe we jump into the middle of a Republic fleet that has their weapons charged and ready. Jumps aren't a line from point A to point B. I honestly don't know what they are, which is why you always exit at predetermined coordinates. Sullivan shook his head. Possibility and probability are not synonymous. Likely, we would merely drop into an unoccupied region of space somewhere between Sonali and Gav, and we triangulate our position using the Nighthawk's stellar telemetry. Do not underestimate just how empty the universe really is. Yeah, Manu, Eliza said, speaking slowly as if to a child. That's why they call it space. Heavy walked around the couch and lay an enormous, reassuring hand on Manu's shoulder. Nothing to worry about, co-captain. One minute we're in jump space, the next we're looking at the stars and doing a hard about, on our way to the edge of the Kestra star system. A chorus of scoffs, sighs, and grunts crossed the lounge as each crew member considered the suggestion. This was his crew. Samantha hadn't suggested any of this. They'd volunteered it. Maybe it wasn't about Samantha being persuasive, so much as it was about the crew of the Matilda being the only people in the sector with a backbone. Decker almost laughed, a swell of pride pushing away the previous cynicism. Even facing odds that should send them running scared, he still felt that the five of them, Samantha too, could pull this off. Okay, then you two. Decker pointed to Sullivan and Heavy. Start working on the Nighthawk. Samantha will give you what you need for complete access to her ship, right? Decker raised his eyebrows accusingly. Samantha nodded and waved her hand towards the cargo bay. Decker continued, Good. Manu, Eliza, Samantha, and myself, we'll start drawing up our insertion and extraction plan. And when I say plan, I mean an actual, honest-to-goodness plan with steps and everything. Between two ex-Navy, one cop, and one secret agent, we should really be better with our tactics. Manu's eyes flared open. Hold up. Our insertion plan? You mean? That's right, Manu. I'm going with her, Decker said with an authoritative nod of the head. This time, it was Samantha who turned and planted her hands on her hips. What? No, I'm not having anyone else risk their lives. I've infiltrated and aggressed in this fashion more times than I can count. We're better off if I go alone. Decker shook his head and held up a pair of fingers. Two things. First, I think you do need help, especially after the bullshit you pulled on Sonali and the beating you're nowhere near recovered from. Second, 
Don't assume I'm doing this only to help you. The Red Kestrels, my father's group led by Reed Casto, they went along with Gallo's plan, and it's resulting in a lot of death and carnage. On Starview Station, I left a lot of innocent people behind so we could stick with a mission that ended up making things worse, not better. This time, it's not just a few dozen people being cut off by an airlock. It's a few dozen billion. If I get Clark and Julian off of Kestris, they'll have the knowledge and resources we need, I need, to help give Reed what he deserves. Samantha's eyes narrowed. Deck, what do you mean about Reed? Decker growled. He hadn't meant to insinuate so much. No sense in backing down now. I might know how to find him. On Mentarid Sea, I might have pretended to be a Kestrel and made contact with him. I've got an access code to Jadari, but it expires soon. If we can get your friends off Kestris, we might be able to do something with it. Decker and Samantha locked eyes. He'd hidden this from her, knowing it would have been too tempting that she would have wanted to pursue Reed Casto at the expense of anything else. Had he revealed it now as a test? He hadn't meant to, but now it was Samantha's turn to prove him right or wrong about if she could put the obsession down, even for a little bit. Samantha bowed her head. Okay, Deck, I get it. It's your heritage. If you want to cram into the Nighthawk, I won't protest. It has room for four passengers. Five in an emergency, she said, raising her eyes to meet Decker's. Once we're back with Julian and Clark and everyone is safe, then we can see about visiting Jardari. Decker huffed, unsure of how to respond. Did that mean Samantha had passed the test he'd never intended to administer? Eliza stood straight and pulled her shoulders back, mimicking a curt military tone. This is the perfect opportunity for me to mention that I, Eliza, am also being deployed on this mission. Manu groaned, throwing his hands up. Fine, fine, sure, whatever. If we're doing this, then we're going to do this in a way that gives us the highest chance of success. Decker snorted and clapped Manu on the shoulder. And... That makes you full captain while I'm gone. Sullivan's cabin was just as Samantha would have presumed, an austere and neat mix of technology and religious artifacts. He cleared off enough room on the desk bolted to the metal wall so she could connect the computer Julian had given her, the only link back to him. I've removed the safeguards and created an access profile coded to you. It's all yours. No sense in protecting the interests of a government that doesn't exist any longer, Samantha said. Sullivan tapped his fingertips together, eyeing the computer like a child with a gift-wrapped toy. You judge too soon. Throughout history, many a bloody coup has come back to bite the perpetrators. No outcomes are foregone. A wry grin bent Samantha's lips. I'd expect no less from a man of faith. Sullivan shrugged at the comment and continued connecting the two systems, old and new. On the corner of the desk, Samantha noticed a high-powered core that looked conspicuously out of place on a ship that still had graded metal stairs and shared bathrooms. That core another salvage, like Heavy's intra-jump transmitter, Samantha asked. Sullivan frowned at the comment. It was not stolen. Any claim of ownership was lost when the ship that housed it was ripped in half and its crew lost a hard vacuum weeks before we stumbled upon it. Waste not, want not. Samantha held up her hands. Hey, I'm not one to judge. Our whole operation is financed by funds the Imperium seized without due process. 
Sullivan tapped a few commands and triumphantly clapped his hands together. It is in our favor that the brain here can interface with your ship's core and then route that information into the Matilda. The screens all flashed in one synchronous pattern. On the primary display in the center of the desk, the familiar interface of the Nighthawk's communication system appeared. Sullivan smiled. We have network integrity. Where are we contacting this Julian fellow? Samantha leaned across the desk and typed a command. An address protocol appeared. Here. Sullivan leaned forward. This is a residential address on Kestris, a person's home. Samantha nodded. That's right. It's my apartment. Sullivan's eyes became hungry. Please elaborate. This is all I can think of. When Julian cut me off, he really cut me off. But my apartment, it's hardened to the point of paranoid embarrassment, all programmed by Julian. The systems monitor for security breaches both digital and physical, and if someone tries to enter through either, it will send a notice to a network of off-the-book systems Julian maintains. Sullivan raised an eyebrow. And if he doesn't check these systems? Samantha tipped her head toward the religious artifacts in the corner of the room. I'm counting on your prayers to handle that part. Sullivan grimaced, turning his face back to the screen as he muttered, Fundamental misunderstanding of religion seems to be a family trait. He tapped a finger on the screen. Channel is open. You have a message prepared, I presume. Samantha nodded. She pointed to the screen of her computer. We send it to the public address with my civilian identity signature, but an incorrect access code for the apartment security system. The message will be captured and forwarded to Julian as an attempted unauthorized usage of my legitimate credentials. Sullivan scrunched his mouth to the side. You are creating a scenario that resembles an actual attempt at a breach, and given your fugitive status, this can't be the first attempt made to access your residence. Samantha shrugged. We're going to send it in a way that will grab someone like Julian's attention. We'll create a script that will repeat the same attempt once, twice, three times, five times, seven times, eleven times, thirteen times, and finally, seventeen times. Sullivan chuckled. A real chuckle. The first Samantha had heard. The first seven prime numbers. Seven itself being a prime as well. That's right. See how fast you noticed? He'll see the pattern, and that will be enough to investigate further. Samantha stood back, giving Sullivan room to work. Sullivan tapped out a flurry of commands. The message from Samantha appeared on the screen. May I read it? Sullivan asked. Samantha gestured her approval. Sullivan scanned the message. Concise and direct. Will he listen? Samantha shrugged. There's a reason we're sending it blind instead of trying to establish a real-time connection. By the time he reads it, he'll know I'm on my way and there's nothing he can do about it. His options will be to snub me or accept that it's my turn to force him off planet. Sullivan tapped a single key. It is away. Samantha jerked forward. That's it? No double checking? Sullivan smirked up at her. You wanted it sent? It is sent. We have no time to be indecisive. It is now in the hands of the Creator. Samantha eyed Sullivan's prayer cushion and beads in the corner of the room. They all looked well-worn. Huh. I suppose it is. Decker tapped the surface of the Command Bridge's central console. 
The entire crew, save for Heavy down in the power plant, was gathered, strapped in at their stations and ready for whatever they encountered. Samantha had been given a seat next to Sullivan's navigation station, temporary straps wrapping the base of her fancy 5E computer to the console. Let's check before dropping. Everyone, sound off, Decker said. No one on the bridge responded. Decker growled. Fine, I'll start. Command station is go. Weapons are go, Eliza yelped. Navigation is go, Sullivan muttered. Helm is go, Manu stated. Power plant is go, Heavy roared. All eyes turned to Samantha. Samantha is go? Good enough, Decker said. Back-to-back drop and jump is going to be rough. I hope you've all got an empty stomach. And if anyone has any last-minute confessions they want to get off their chest, this may be your last chance. Not funny, Manu mumbled from the pilot's seat. Drop in ten seconds. The sound of the jump drive spinning down filled the bridge, signaling they had entered the irreversible part of the drop. Like it or not, the Matilda was re-entering normal space, and there was nothing they could do about it but hope to see a black expanse of stars and nothing else. Dropping, Manu said. Disorientation and a rush of nausea crashed into Decker's body, a cold sweat appearing on his skin. He had the distinct impression that some of his atoms arrived slightly before the rest, bumping into each other like drunken revelers in a crowded dance hall. How it really worked on a scientific level, he'd never been able to figure out. We're alive, Eliza cried out. Decker forced the sickness from his mind. He jabbed his fingers at the control service and the large vid screens affixed to the front of the bridge came to life, revealing black sky, stars, and nothing else. Dead space. Sullivan, telemetry, Decker said, holding back a dry heave. Sullivan's face was nearly touching his screen, his fingers tapping against the terminal's keyboard. Accessing the Nighthawk's stellar cartography and... We have a lock. Sending new entry and exit coordinates near the Kestris system to the helm. Manu whooped. That was fast, Manu said. All right, everybody, right back into the drink. Eliza exhaled and groaned loudly. I could use a drink. You sure we won't want to take a fiver here? Decker took a breath, face damp with sweat. We'll have time to recover once we're back in jump space. Let's get it over with. Decker closed his eyes and breathed deeply. Our next stop is Imperium, er, Republic Space. Let's put a dent in it. He gripped the sides of the command table. Manu nodded and turned his attention to the helm controls. Jump in five, four, three. The whine of the jump drives filled the bridge. Decker felt the different, yet equally unpleasant sensation of a jump field being created around them. He set his forehead down on the control surface. The last nether he picked up on Mentarid was in his pocket. Plenty of time to enjoy it before they hit Kestra's space. Just a few more seconds of agony. The jump alert on the command bridge sounded. The feeling of rapid pressurization followed by release shook Decker's body, and once again, he got the distinct impression that not all of his atoms were jumping at the same time. The stars disappeared from the vid screens, replaced by the depthless black of the higher dimension. They were on their way to Kestris. Decker slumped out of his seat and lowered himself onto the metal deck, rolling over onto his back and spreading his arms and legs. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm just gonna take a little rest right here. He pulled the nether out of his pocket and placed it between his lips, taking a long drag. From the corner of the bridge, near the navigation station, he heard the unmistakable sound of someone losing the contents of their stomach onto the metal floor. 
He rolled his head to the side to see Samantha bent over in her seat, wiping the back of her hand across her mouth. Runs in the family, Decker grunted. Feel free to join me on the floor if you'd like. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to episode 48. Matilda's doing a U-turn back to Yesteris, you know. Story's not over. They've still got, you know, 12 more chapters to figure out how we are going to uh, conclude this story. And part one is seeing what's on the news and racing back to Kestris to, you know, rescue their friends. Hopefully you've enjoyed the story uh, all along, uh, and, you know, and are excited for what's coming, where the final chapter is all the way to the end and the epilogue, you know, already written, which means I just have to get there without too many plot holes and story contrivances that in the first draft seem like, you know, things I will figure out later on. And now it's time for me to figure it out. And I'm trying with, you know, Hannah, the editor's help to make it tight and not feel like a bunch of author hand-waving and deus ex machinas that pull things together, you know, when they haven't earned that right to be pulled together. So stick around and keep listening. Um, if you want to check out any of the paperbacks, ebook or audiobook versions, they're all up on Amazon. Volume 4 will contain the final 15 episodes, uh, 46 through 60. And then I'm going to put it all together in one big um, composed volume. It'll be 800-something pages on a big 6 by 9 print, which originally this was supposed to be just one book. It turned out you know, to be way too long because I wrote it like a TV uh, season you know, series of episodes, which it's not really how you're supposed to write a novel. I, I didn't know that at the time. So now you get four books and four audiobooks, four ebooks, four paperbacks, and one big omnibus edition. So check it out on Amazon. Look me up. Go to ericflowers.com if you want to talk. And otherwise, just stick around because in a few days, we are going to be in episode 49. 